After you have two, you'll think back and think this was pretty good. That was easy. Yeah, I, I know. I'm scared of that. I, I've been thinking that very thing. That's true. Well, we finished Hebrews, and we said we were going to go into James. That's true, right? Okay. James is uh, the anglicized name of Jacob. So we're actually reading the book of Jacob. Um, we, we've discussed a little bit uh, at the end of last class who the identity of James the author might be, and there are really two traditions. The ancient and oldest tradition is that Jesus had uh, no uh, stepbrothers, as it were, um, and no stepsisters, that Mary was perpetually uh, half, thank you, half. I always say step and it's half. Um, that Mary was perpetually a virgin. So after she, uh, obviously she was a virgin when she gave birth to Christ, and the church tradition is that she uh, continued to be a virgin throughout her uh, marriage to Joseph. Now that was held in the church just by everyone um, for I don't know how long. Um, probably at least until the 20th century is my guess that that predominated. Probably wasn't until the 19th, 20th century, somewhere in there, that the view started changing. Um, you have biblical evidence where if you read in English, it just seems uh, quite obvious and quite evident that Jesus did have half-siblings, um, that Mary did not know Joseph until... Jesus was born, or uh, Jesus' mother and brothers come to get him when he's teaching, right? Um, one place explicitly, James is even called the brother of uh, our Lord. Um, while in English this all seems to make sense, and maybe it is true, um, the tradition of the church has been to say, well, the Greek word adelphoi and these other grammatical constructions can be understood in such a way that it might be cousins or relatives or not necessarily. Uh, some have even speculated uh, that Joseph might have brought in his own children um, to the marriage. Who knows? Um, anyway, they have done their best to defend this tradition that Mary is perpetually uh, a virgin. Um, how we look at this as Lutherans, we look at this as the scripture never says exactly. Okay? Um, and so it remains an open question, a question where you're free as a Christian to say, I, you know, I, I, my guess is that she was perpetually a virgin. I hold that. Or uh, my guess is that she wasn't, that after she gave birth to Jesus as a virgin, she consummated a relationship with Joseph that resulted in his having half-siblings. You can hold that view. In other words, you can hold either view. It's an open question, and no one's going to condemn you. It doesn't break fellowship. Obviously, in the end, we'll know the answer one way or the other. It'll be revealed to us. Wouldn't have been much of a marriage for Joseph, would it? That's true, uh, but people speculate it would have been a difficult or different marriage anyway, in the sense that, uh, I mean, not many people can claim to have God as their stepson. You know? uh, likewise, Joseph, remember when uh, Mary first uh, came to him with the news, Joseph thought, oh, this is great. No, Joseph thought... Yeah, what'd you do? <laughs> and remember, he determined to put her away quietly. Um, and even that was a shows something about the character of Joseph, the gentleness of Joseph. Because I mean, she's an adulterer; he could have done whatever he wanted. Probably, I mean, there's examples of an adulterer, an adulteress that's going to be stoned, right? 
that Jesus says, uh, I, I suppose that Mary could have been stoned at Joseph's wish. Uh, so Joseph determines to put her away quietly, and then the angel comes in a dream and tells him, and he believes. So Joseph is a gentle a man, a gentle spirit, a pious man, a merciful and gracious man. Um, we, we know that. Um, you know, evidence, evidence biblically that's pointed to, I pointed out some of the things of, of understanding James as the half-brother of Jesus, one of the half-brothers of Jesus, but other biblical evidence that the church fathers have brought to bear too is, well, if, if that's true, if Jesus had half-brothers, then why at the cross does Jesus give Mary into the household of John, his disciple, when it rightfully would have been one of his other brothers? Uh, one of his half-brothers, one of the sons of Mary. So there's uh, one, one item that's been brought up. At any rate, you're free to hold either position. But it does have bearing to some degree on uh, the isagogics, that external set of circumstances in, in which we come at and, and try to understand uh, this particular epistle of James. Um, this epistle we know is uh, written by the James, and there are lots of different Jameses, as you probably know, and that kind of confuses things. This James is not one of the original 12. Okay? This James is uh, brought on as an apostle and becomes, a, and becomes a, and not an apostle in the sense of the 12, but apostle in the broader sense of the use, and becomes the chief leader in the church of Jerusalem after Peter. Peter is the chief leader in Jerusalem. Then Peter is forced to flee because of persecution, and James takes over. And James is, is probably the leader in Jerusalem for over 30 years. If you look in Acts chapter 15, uh, you'll see that there's the first great council of the Christian church recorded for us. This happens in the year 49. And the final decision is not rendered by Peter or by anyone else, but by James. So James is a head honcho. He's a big guy. And this epistle is by James, that James, uh, the Bishop of Jerusalem. It's written right around 50 AD. So right after that uh, council, if you're tracking with the timeline in Acts, um, right after Acts 15, roughly that time. So what do you have going on in the church? You have a great big persecution going on and a great big dispersion of Christians as Christians uh, flee Jerusalem and flee uh, those areas, uh, essentially fleeing um, both Jewish authorities and pagan authorities. And there's a massive spreading out of Christians. And you'll note that that's exactly how James begins his epistle. Um, he says... Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the diaspora, in the dispersion. And he's referring to that persecution that has sent everyone being dispersed out, which also, as we know in hindsight, is a great and wonderful thing for the kingdom of God, because without it, what would not have spread? The gospel. The gospel. Right. So the gospel is spread because of persecution. Um, so James writes this in, uh, in 50 AD. Now, if this is the brother of the Lord, let's, let's play with that idea for a while. Um, 
then uh, we know that uh, if this James is, is the brother of the Lord and the James mentioned in the Gospels is the brother of the Lord, then we know that this James uh, did not believe in Jesus. In fact, that James and the other half-brothers of Jesus rejected Jesus, thought he was insane, thought he had a demon. When uh, Jesus' mother and brothers come as Jesus is teaching, um, they're not coming to say, hey, it's time for dinner, come on home. They're coming to get him because they are concerned that he is making a public spectacle of himself and is going to end up getting himself killed. So they are there not because they believe him, they are there to stop him. Um, if this is the same James and he's the half-brother of the Lord and he's an unbeliever in Jesus, he's an unbeliever all the way through the crucifixion, all the way through the resurrection, and there's an indication in Paul that he would have that Jesus appeared to James. And that it is thought that at that appearance, not unlike how the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul, that the resurrected Jesus appeared to James and there is James' conversion. Yes. Um, that kind of goes with what you were saying about uh, Jesus speaking to John at the cross. If James and the brothers were not believers in Jesus, they wouldn't have been there. Yes, and there would be the counter argument. Yeah. And that Jesus said, Who are my mothers and brothers? Those who do the will of my father, right? So, yeah, he would consider John his disciple, his brother, over his half flesh. Brothers, so yeah, you make you make the good counter argument. Um, undoubtedly, there's a, an argument back to that. I don't, you know, these this goes on and on forever to the point where the church just finally says it's an open question. Um, I find myself personally agnostic. I I think that there's uh, a good deal of biblical evidence, and the puzzle pieces seem to fit that he was the half brother. But it is so hard for me and an open question to go against 1,900 years of church fathers that forgot more theology than I'll ever know. So I find myself in an agnostic position. I don't really know. I'm happy to sh show both sides and evidence for both sides and happy to show Christians that you're free to take either one because Scripture doesn't give us a thus saith the Lord, Mary was perpetually a virgin, or thus saith the Lord, these are his half-brothers born of Mary. You must confess this. never says that. So My I don't... introduction says... The author of this letter could not have been the Apostle James who died too early in 44 AD to have written it. The other two men named James had neither the statue nor the influence that the writer of this letter had. Well, that's true and doesn't refute anything that I've, yeah. that I've taught so far. Um, yeah, the first James, James the Apostle, as you'll find in Acts, is the first apostle to be martyred. He, he is persecuted and he is killed. Um, so it's clearly not that James. Uh, nor is it, the, nor is it uh, the other James who's the apostle. Um, so it's neither of those two. So who is this James? And one of the, I mean, again, one of the reasons why uh, I think that leans to evidence that leans toward the sides of this being the half brother of Jesus is who is this other James then that grows in such stature as to be elevated second to Peter, if not the half brother of Jesus. So I think that's a, that's a good argument, too, um, to be made. I think probably the majority of uh, conservative good scholars today believe that James was the half-brother of Jesus. 
It's just that they're in the minority over 2,000 years of church history. So I wring my hands, you know. <laughs> I don't. No, I don't really. I don't really care, you know. Um, but the facts, re- the facts remain essentially the same. That there's a figure, James, in the early church who ruled in Jerusalem, who was eventually martyred, who uh, uh, was the bishop in Jerusalem, uh, certainly at 49 for that council in Acts 15. And here in 50, as he writes this epistle, he writes in a familiar way. He writes in an authoritative way. Um, he writes as, as one who's not going to be questioned or disagreed with. Um, and uh, he has uh, a way of writing that's very... Uh, very similar to Jesus' way of speaking. And we're going to see that. We're going to see some of the themes and analogies that Jesus uses overlap with uh, what James himself teaches and how James teaches. Um, you, you see in Paul um, that Jesus, uh, you see in Paul like a statement, uh, you have been justified by grace through faith and this not of yourselves is the work of God or you know, is the free gift of God. So Paul just kind of like in our Western way, says it precisely and says it doctrinally and says it how it is. And that's why we like Paul and resonate with Paul. Um, When Jesus is teaching that you are justified uh, by grace alone, um, what does he do? Tells a parable. Tells a story. For example, of uh, uh, the prodigal son or the lost sheep or the lost coin. Um, So Jesus doesn't come right out and say, hey, this is my teaching. Everyone sit down. You are saved by grace alone. Jesus never says that. That would be the Paul way of teaching it. Jesus says, let me tell you a story. By the end of the story, you understand that you are saved by grace alone, right? Even though he didn't come out and just nail you between the eyes with it. James is the same way. With James, you're going to get a story. You're going to get an analogy. You're going to have to find what he's talking about. And then you're going to see that he's saying something no different than Jesus, no different than Paul. He just has a story way of telling it. Okay? What else do we need to know about James? Oh, yeah. Uh, James, um, uh, Joseph's uh, father's name was Jacob. Okay? Why is that significant? Because if he is the half-brother of Jesus, then he is Joseph's first son, and it would fit tradition for him to name his oldest son the name of his father. That's how they did it, Jacob. And as we mentioned, as I mentioned at the beginning, James is actually Jacob. James is the anglicized version. So they knew him as Jacob. Even in in Acts 15, he's named Jacob. He's named Jacob throughout all the scriptures. Anglicized, we know him as James. Okay? I don't know the precise history of why James and not Jacob. That's come to us in, in English, but uh, in, in the Greek text where you have the name Jacobu of James, the genitive of James. It's the epistle of Jacob. Um, that's how it looks in Greek. Um, again, with this, with this idea that he be the half-brother of Jesus, then you find another half-brother named in Scripture, and that's uh, Judah, or anglicized Jude. And so it's thought that then the book of Jude would be also written by a half-brother of Jesus and the full brother of James. So it's quite possible that in the canon we have two books written by the half-brothers of Jesus who are full brothers with one another. Okay, well, fascinating background, fascinating themes. Um, James is one of the major, major figures. Um, 
And we can just from there, unless there's, oh, I guess I should say, we know something about the, the circumstances in which he's writing. Obviously, there's a massive persecution. There's a dispersion of the Christians. We know that from his epistle. We also know that from Acts, if we plug him into that timeline. Um, so James is writing to a persecuted church. And specifically, we're going to see that he is writing to a church of people. It's very likely that in this dispersion, some people became wealthy and some people became poor. And there is some economic upheaval going on. Um, so we're going to see a lot of comments throughout James referring to wealthy Christians and poor Christians. That's going to be one of the major thematic elements in James. Um, any other questions? Any context that I left out or missed? Preliminary stuff? Okay. Let's jump right into it. Um, okay. Uh, this is uh, James, or Jacob, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually... Uh, you know, the construction in Greek, I think, is just interesting how he does this, because he says, Jacobus, which is Jacob, of God and of Jesus Christ, slave. Doulos. So that's his descriptor. That's how he describes himself. Um, a, a slave or servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes... I thought he was writing to the Christian church. He is. The Christian church is what? The 12 tribes. Who are the 12 tribes? Israel. Do you see what James is doing? The 12 tribes, Israel is the church, and the church is Israel. This is one of the verses that you can look at that shows how alien and bizarre this 20th century, 21st century view of the end times and the importance of the nation state of Israel reconstituted politically in 1948 and how God and all his angels have all their focus and attention on Israel and we should too. How nonsensical that is from a biblical paradigm. Already here in the first century, for James himself, who is Jewish, what matters is not the nation state of Israel per se. What matters is the church. The church is the true Israel. Now elsewhere in scripture, Paul goes on to describe this in numerous places, Galatians, Romans, just for example. But biblically, Israel is the church and the church is Israel. Does that make sense? So all of the scriptural places that lift up Israel, it's lifting up the church. It's talking about the church in the New Testament, which then inoculates us against this brand new 20th, 21st century teaching that the nation state of Israel constituted in 1948 is somehow the Israel that matters or the Israel that, scripture, that the New Testament is talking about. Nonsense. All right. Um, so in these last days, we want to have our eyes not on the political nation state of Israel, but on Christ and on the business of his church, the true Israel. Or as James puts it, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Okay? Um, the diaspora, that's referring to the persecution, as I've mentioned before. And then he says, uh, yes? Excuse me, I have a question about the 12 tribes. Because in the new heaven, I guess the Jerusalem, there's something about the, the three 
the tribes are on each side, north, south, east, and west, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, trying to remember. Stones or something. Yeah, so that's right. Those are honored or recognized in the New Jerusalem. So uh -huh. does that mean we're a member of a, of a, how does that cross with us as a Gentile coming into the tribe of Israel? Well, in the words of Romans, we've been grafted in. And uh, in the words of, uh, of Paul elsewhere, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Um, but we are all one in Christ. And what that is depicting in the apocalyptic genre and language of Revelation and elsewhere is that those 12 tribes that constitute the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, we are that new city, that heavenly Jerusalem, because we are uh, part of the 12 tribes. We are part of Israel. Uh, we've been grafted in, we've become members of, um, and indeed there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. We are all God's people. We are all Israel, so to speak. Does that kind of answer your question? It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a specific uh, tribe, per se? Yeah, yeah. Not that I know of, yeah. Well, it's interesting. If you ask a Jew that, what tribe are they a part of? No uh, one No one knows. knows, yeah. Well, you, of course, you have that, I mean... Dispersed. Yeah, you have the ten tribes get swallowed up by Assyria, the, ten, the northern kingdom, never to be reconstituted politically. And you have uh, the two southern tribes. And that's what remains... And, uh, you know, they're, they're taken over by uh, Babylon in, what is it, 586, 587. And they're taken up by Babylon. And then it's just a story of occupation after another. I think Alexander the Great had them for a while. And then uh, ultimately the Romans have them. And then that's, I mean, just making wild generalizations historically. And then comes Jesus, and they're under Roman rule at that time, right? Um, and then comes the, the destruction of the temple in 70. And from that time forward, Israel, Israel as, a, as a people really sort of loses its essence. I mean, at best, it's two tribes. At best. Um, so yeah, it doesn't surprise me that Jewish people today have, would have no knowledge of... So this label, replacement theology, uh, which is used now... Uh, to describe our position... That yes. the church replaces, so we yeah. Say there, that's not accurate because there was never a replacement. There always was church, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great argument to make, and I think the best argument to make, because you have Paul say that not all of Israel is Israel, right? Right. So even in the Old Testament, even at the time of Jesus and Paul, um, you have uh, an Israel that is understood as the nation state and an Israel that is understood as the faithful, those who actually believe in the Messiah. So with that being true, then you have uh, essentially two Israels all the way from the beginning of Israel, you know, which you could argue is Abraham, all the way to, uh, I suppose you could even argue the very present in a sense, um, because the only true Israel are those who believe. The only sons of Abraham are those who believe. Um, the 12 tribes, properly speaking, are those who believe. Okay, uh, verse 2. Count it or reckon it, determine it. This is a, this is a mental thing that you have to do. <laughs> um, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Um, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
Now, in context, this is the 12 tribes of the diaspora. This is the persecution that's happening. Count this persecution and what you suffer joy, James says. And you have to reckon it joy because it, obviously your immediate experience of it is not joy. You're losing your home. Your life is in jeopardy. You're being kicked out of, uh, uh, out of your city, your place of residence, and you're having to become nomadic or move to a different locale. Count this all joy. Reckon it. Consider it joy when you meet these trials of various kinds. And here's why. Verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Um, God tempts no one. That's true. God doesn't tempt people into sin. But he does test us. And he tests our faith to make our faith uh, stronger. Um, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Or... uh, Grant me more faith. Um, those are scary prayers because you don't know what God has in mind to <laughs> increase your faith. Increase my faith, but please gently, Lord. Um, but unfortunately, that's not really how it works. Sometimes our faith is only strengthened uh, through suffering very difficult uh, trials and, and tests. But at any rate, the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So the faith does grow stronger. And we become steadfast through the trials that the Lord allows us to endure and indeed hands down to us. Verse 4, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, that you may be uh, a mature Christian and, uh, you know, perfect not in the moral sense, um, complete not as if you no longer need heaven, but rather perfect and complete in terms of uh, letting all trial and persecution simply produce more and more steadfastness in you. you know. I'm sorry? Well, that's, yeah, certainly the case. Yeah, yeah, it's always, it's always and ever in, in Christ. Um, let me check on... Yeah, the... Uh, Yeah, I mean, because that's just it. As you are, as you suffer, um, and this is a point that James will bring out later, it's certainly a point that Paul meditates on, that the suffering of Christians, and specifically the persecution we undergo by virtue of our being Christians, um, that is, because we are in Christ, and indeed we have been made one body with him, it is associated with the sufferings of Jesus himself, Right? Um, remember when Paul is persecuting Christians, Jesus comes to him and he says, why do you, remember, persecute me? Yeah. And Paul could have said, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting your followers. My followers are me. Right? They're one body with me. Um, so also, as Christians suffer, we need to realize that um, from Jesus' standpoint, he would say, you are suffering and I am suffering with you. We are suffering. We are one body. So we, we know that in sufferings we are brought into a closeness and we are brought into a kinship with Christ who suffered, right? Unjustly. Suffered for being faithful. Suffered for holding the right confession. Um, for his faithfulness he suffers. And so likewise uh, we find Christ our pattern in our sufferings. Um, 
You see the familiarity with which uh, James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers. Now, with this, my brothers, uh, this is one of the other very difficult and interpretive uh, points with James' epistle. When he writes, my brothers, is he writing to all Christians in general? Or is he writing to pastors in specific and secondarily to all Christians? So an example of writing to pastors in specific and secondarily to all Christians would be the pastoral epistles that we looked at. For example, First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. There, Paul the Apostle is writing specifically to a pastor, Timothy, or Titus, right? And only secondarily does it have broader application to the church. Does that make sense? The question is, is James the same way? Is James being written to brothers, namely brothers in the ministry, and secondarily to Christians as a whole, or uh, at least written to the brothers, but in earshot as a public letter so that everyone in the church hears it, but it's written chiefly to the pastors, or is brothers uh, more broad? Is he just writing to all Christians, as there's examples? Um, Maybe the time to go into this argument isn't right now. I just bring it up because that was the first instance of the phrase. But later on in the epistle, there are times where my brother's appears to be quite evidently broad. But there are other times where it appears to be much more narrow, um, specific to even preaching. So as we get into those sections, we'll take a look at that and we'll see uh, maybe the dynamics of that argument, whether brothers might be more narrow or more broad, given the context. In your absence, last couple of weeks we were discussing uh, you know, trials and suffering, and this seems to be in the same category. Uh-huh. And it seems like James is taking the position, you know, kind of joy. Be, this is good for you. This is, yeah. uh, and we were, I think, discussing it in the context that and maybe it's how can you honestly say in the humanity form uh-huh. that this is how is cancer good? How is yeah being persecuted by the world around you. Yeah, he's saying, oh, chin up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Would you comment on that in that context? Yeah, that's a great point. And we don't want to call evil good or good evil, which is what so, so often happens in Christendom. And you get these lame excuses like, well, I've got terminal cancer. Well, don't worry. God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Or don't worry, God's working through this. I mean, in other such uncomfort, uncomforting things, um, the things that are basically obscene. Uh, there's a, a professor, well, yeah, I guess I had him for a little while, um, and he lost uh, two of his children to just terrible diseases and pain. And he records some of the well-meaning but insensitive, even obscene things that, peop- that Christians said to him in order to comfort him. It's meant to be comforted. Uh, uh, God is working good out of this, or many blessings are sure to come. And he reflects on those words and takes you into the context of looking at his little child who can't speak, writhing in pain on the emergency bed. You know, uh, and just how obscene that sort of calling evil good is. So all of that, I think, is we have to keep that in mind. And I think the key aspect of understanding James is what he says uh, when he says, uh, count it or reckon it. In other words, it's not joy. Yeah, we know it's not. 
Right. It's not joy. It's not uh, good or pleasant or wonderful, and we shouldn't call it as such. But we should reckon it, count it. Um, you know, a similar a similar reckoning just is when God uh, God reckons us to be righteous. Yeah, we're not. We are. We're not yeah. <laughs> in any way. But but God. In one, in one in one sense we're not, and in another sense we are. Yes. So. Um, so I think, I think the first thing to bring to mind is that James is, wants us to reckon things, that is, acknowledging that they are not joy, and yet reckoning them and thinking them joy. But I also want you to, to realize this, that what, what James is talking about is actually very specific in, in a sense, because he's talking to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's talking about a persecution that is coming... Um, specific to the Christian faith that has been a, a inflicted upon them by others. Um, here in mind, I, James doesn't seem to have in mind um, such broad things as cancer or the suffering of children. There must or, be martyrdom, though. I mean, there must be being killed. There, there is certainly that. Yeah, there is certainly that. There, there's a, there's some distinction to be made there, yeah, and, and I think that I think that James has in mind suffering specifically on account of being Christian rather than suffering that seems to befall all human beings. Um, Is that more or less uh, bearing your cross because you are a Christian? Yes, I think that's true, and and maybe to reflect more concretely. At this time already, you have martyrdom taking place in the church. You know, Stephen uh, has uh, been uh, martyred already. James, um, not this James, but another James, has been martyred already. And Christians from this time forward, there's increasing martyrdom. And the accounts of, of the early church martyrs are extremely enlightening to read. Now, there's probably a great deal of some myth and some gusto written back into them, you know. Um, but one thing that is, that is almost universally true is they looked forward to their martyrdom. Um, the faithful looked forward to their martyrdom and counted it as joy because they counted it... Um, it's the same way that remember when uh, Peter and some of them were arrested for preaching the gospel and remember that they counted it joy that they would be worthy to suffer right for the gospel of Christ the martyrs took that same attitude and considered it to be the highest honor that they would be considered by God worthy to suffer in this way for him and for his gospel so in other words, they looked at it as Christ is the martyr. And if I am allowed to be a martyr, what a high honor to be called to the same calling that Christ himself is called to, to the office of martyr, to the one who in faithfulness gives his life. So these accounts of martyrs, uh, both <coughs> pastors and non-pastors, showing joy, uh, grace, mercy, even in the midst of their martyrdom, now, undoubtedly, some of there's been some fiction sprinkled in with that. But the fact of the matter is that as Christians were even facing martyrdom and persecutions of all sorts, James' encouragement that they count that, suffering for the sake of Christ, to be joy. Um, that takes on, that catches on um, in a huge way in the early church.
So I think, I think that's most specifically <coughs> what James has in mind. The other suffering that we go through, cancer, the loss of children, you know, some of the deeper sufferings in life, I don't believe that James specifically has in mind. I think that there are certain things that we should not count as joy, um, if that helps. Yes, that's true. That's one of the understandings of vocations. Sometimes God calls us to be caretakers. Sometimes God calls us to ones to be ones who need to receive care. And to be uh, laid up in a hospital bed, um, many people I talk to find that to be uh, meaningless or worthless or not a vocation. Like, yeah, like I wish I could get out of here and get busy and do something. Well, God has called you to this sickbed. He has called you to sickness. He has called you to weakness. That is your office. My and sister looked at cancer as uh, expecting the love of God because of members in her church and different little things that they could do for her. Yes. And they were always happy to do it. Yes. And Yes, exactly right. So uh, that goes against the grain of many of us, myself included. And at the root of that, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, is a little bit of pride. You know, um, on the one hand, we don't want to be lazy, or we don't want to be takers, or we don't. But on the other hand, if we won't allow yeah, ourselves to be carrying that, what's driving that yeah. motivation? Yeah, we and really don't look at our motivations a lot of the time. Right. And there are offices that God calls us to where we must be taken care of. And I think maybe the chief example that we all go through of that is the office of being a child. The office in which you enter this world is you are one who must be taken care of. Right? Um, what a wonderful and beautiful office that is. Especially Jesus himself calls us to reflect on this because he says of these children, of these office bearers, um, that if you don't receive the kingdom as one of these, then you will by no means enter it. In other words, just as a child receives everything, so we are also called to receive everything. We are called to have that office of child before God. God the giver of good gifts, God the Father, and we simply receive. Well, that has a reflection in the hospital bed. It has a reflection in other things. You know, um, the tragedies of the professor that I spoke of losing his children, well, that's not without biblical example and precedent in Job for, for uh, one. Job lost his children, remember? Um, <clears throat> lost them as Satan caused it, but the, but the Lord allowed it. And um, Job had to wrestle with that. And really, uh, you can read the book of Job and, and see all the, all the false advice that all his people give uh, his friends, even his wife, seem to give him and um, they try to give him false comfort they try to give him false rationale they, and it many times it appears to be very pious appears to be the holy thing in fact appears to be the very thing we would say ourselves and it's wrong um, sometimes you just are called to the office of Job called to the office of suffering called to the office of enduring and called to the office of uh, retaining your faith even in the midst of impossible circumstances where if you were to really follow through with your thoughts and feelings, you would reject God and reject the faith, and yet you don't. All right, well, uh, 
does that I, maybe that ties into the broader conversation you had uh, last night with suffering? But um, I think James here specifically is talking about the trials that come to the church to the twelve tribes as a result of their persecution. They're being persecuted for being Christians. Um, all this has the effect of steadfastness. You know, it also has the effect, as we mentioned earlier, that the gospel spreads through persecution. And it puts the devil in a terrible bind. The early church recognized this and commented on it because if the devil does nothing, then the church prospers. And if the devil persecutes us, history shows that the church prospers even more. Um, you know, I, yeah. The church grows through the blood of the martyrs was one of the phrases that has been used to describe it. All right, well, uh, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, uh, now, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. What kind of wisdom are we talking about? If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks knowledge of algebra, let him ask God. Is that the kind of wisdom? No, different wisdom. Yeah, talking about a spiritual wisdom, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And remaining uh, wise in terms of God's word and how to address those challenges, right? Yes. Oh, I think that's such an excellent point because intelligence or shrewdness would tell you what? Give in. Yeah, give in. Come on. Yeah, God's merciful. He'll forgive you, right? Just give in and go do what you want to do and keep your faith a secret and. That's wisdom, that's, in, or excuse me, that's intelligence, and that's um, shrewdness. Um, that's also pragmatism. And I sad to say that's probably what governs our church today, it's is not, not doing what's right, but doing what's smart. People uh, say, it, when you do something wrong, well, it's just business. Yeah, it's exactly. Just, you know, it's a whole different category. Exactly. So uh, you bring up a great point. So wisdom is that deeper knowledge that says I'm not going to do the smart or intelligent or shrewd thing. I'm going to do the faithful thing. That's wisdom. And it takes great wisdom to see. because, uh, And it's a gift of God because otherwise we're blind and we just see what we see. And what I see is pain and suffering coming upon me and my family. I'm going to avoid it. Right? Save my family. Right. But wisdom says, no, accept it and count it all joy. Reckon it all joy when these things befall you. Well, um... I had this conversation with my brother the other day. We were talking about our, you know, the current climate and whatnot. And I, I mean, there's lots, there's other places too where Christ talks about um, being as wise as serpents, the wisest serpents, and innocent as doves. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 uh, I think in his discourse, he tells them when you see these signs to flee. And not, you know, not hang around, not look back, not take anything with you. So, I mean, I think that's, in another sense, to me, that's the wisdom part of it is to know when you're, um, 
your faith, you're being called to uh, accept in faith mm -hmm. um, versus when you're called to be pragmatic in a sense and say, I don't need to sit around here if there's an alternative. You know what I'm saying? Like, like um, I'm thinking of the guy, one of the early church fathers who was, was captured and, and martyred and whatnot, and he, you know, he just accepted it and went with it, but up until that point, he was trying to flee. I know the persecuted church of recent history as well, where, you know, the church goes underground and it has to be very shrewd. Yes. And, and um, so I, I think there's a, I think in, in those cases, especially under persecution, yes. it is very difficult to over-spiritualize yes. and say, well, I'm just going to accept this because this is... Yeah, versus to say, well, wait a minute, there's something I can do about this, and there's no sense in, you know, letting evil run rampant. Yes, we shouldn't seek martyrdom. Yeah. But when it comes, we shouldn't yeah, avoid it. Exactly. And right. so I think I think that's the 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 common problem is to take, especially James, because it seems so, you know, black and white and hardcore, and um, you know how to how to understand these things. In, in within their context and not overemphasize. But even James agrees with you because look, he's uh, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Get yeah. back here, you cowards! Um, that's yeah. not what he says, right? right? So so look, uh, the church is scattered, and he's okay with that. Yeah. We don't need, need to suicidally seek martyrdom, exactly. and yet when it when it comes down to it, and there's no way out other than apostasy, yeah. we cannot apostatize. We cannot avoid yeah. it. Yeah, so we don't seek it, but we don't uh, avoid it either. Right. Yeah, um, that's where the wisdom part is. It's very, it's it, you have to, like I, like I said in this discussion with my brother, he was taking this, you know, over spiritual view. God's going to take care of everything, and I'm like, dude, you know, this is dumb. You know, vote, be a part of your, you know, fulfill your vocation of being a good citizen and fight these things. And then prepare for them, not in the sense that I'm going to be able to, you know, like you're fighting for life. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's sacrifice, oh, yeah. sacrificing your faith. Yeah. But in conjunction with your faith. So anyway, I yeah. just think that's where the wisdom is needed is to know, you know, how to approach these things. Yes, very. Um, is this wisdom, is it the same thing that Jesus says before Pilate, you know, truth? Jesus says, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. Uh -huh. It was an interesting statement to me because he said, my whole purpose is to yeah. come and reveal truth. Yeah. And is that the same as wisdom here? I think so, and, and here's how. Um, when Jesus uh, says, I came to testify of the truth, you recall also that Pilate's answer is, what is truth, yeah. right? And then um, takes the existential now, elsewhere, out, right? Jesus has actually told us uh, what truth is, or rather, who truth is. Mm. I am the way and the truth. I am the truth, right? So truth is, uh, while it does have a content, it's never abstract, like truth unto itself. Truth is always and ever the person of Jesus. So yeah, it's ultimate. Yeah, it does have a content. I mean, the right. truth of Jesus is that baptism saves, mm -hmm. that uh, the church is one, it's uh, the yeah, articles of the faith. Right. But the truth is yet embodied in him. I am the truth. 
Now that brings, uh, I'm so glad you brought that up, Barry, because that brings me right to the next reflection. If any of you lacks wisdom, now we're accustomed to thinking wisdom is like smarts. We've already made a distinction between smarts and spiritual wisdom, the deeper wisdom and knowledge of God. It's one more step that we need to take just as we say, well, there's truth and Jesus is the truth. There's wisdom and Jesus is the wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate. And in fact, uh, if we're Old Testament literate the way that this James certainly was, um, you need look no place other than Proverbs. Uh, I believe it's the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Wisdom is personified. And wisdom is personified as a female. But nonetheless, that wisdom personified is no one other than Christ himself. Um, so Christ is the wisdom of God, the scriptures say. And the wisdom or word of God incarnate is Christ. So if any of you lacks wisdom, while we want to say that there's a content to that, there's a perspective, there's a viewpoint, there's a perception, we want to say ultimately that this wisdom is Christ himself. If you find yourself lacking in Christ, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be or he will be given him. In other words, as we ask for more wisdom, we ask for more Jesus. Otherwise, we run to the we run to to uh, viewing the gift as higher than the giver, and we start to say, "Well, I want to be really wise," mm -hmm. but you can't really be wise unless you have more Jesus, right? Because you don't want to be wise apart from Jesus. You want to be wise in Jesus. So, yeah. So what I what I want you to what I want you to reflect on, and as James writes this epistle to be reflected on in the Jewish way of reading it over and over again and reflecting on it over and over again, I believe this is the first place uh, that he really has Christ thinly veiled, that he wants you to be seeing Christ right behind these words, right behind this concept of wisdom. Does that make sense? So it's yet another way where you dig in Jesus' parables and suddenly you see what the things represent and you dig a little here with this verse and you see that while wisdom is certainly a content, it is also a person, namely Jesus himself. It reminds me of the other verses when if a father would, what was it, if a father would a father give his son a stone when he asked for a fish, you know, God gives generously and he's referring to faith and the Holy Spirit. Yes. And this reminds me Yeah, you're exactly right. And and likewise, if, if we ask doubting, then we ask as ones who, who we ask God for bread, and but we secretly think he's going to give us a stone, or we ask him for a fish, and we secretly think he's going to give us a serpent. That would be an example of unbelief, of double-mindedness. And that's verse 6. Let him, that is, let us, ask in faith with no doubting. Okay? For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Back, forth, every which way, uncertain. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting reference there, too, because of Jesus famously doing what? Calming the sea, which would be putting an end to doubt in James' way of speaking, you see. Uh, a man who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Um, if you recall when Peter is sinking, uh, it's specifically what causes him to sink is 
takes his eyes off Jesus, but it's the wind if you go digging. Hmm. It's the wind. Um, oh, you mean the wind that spooks him? says he sees the wind. Hmm. So he takes his eyes off Jesus and sees the wind and begins to sink. Um, it's possibly a reference to, uh, to Peter in specific, though I sort of doubt it, but I think it's uh, no one who's, who's aware of what Jesus did uh, just very recently on the sea um, could miss the illusion that one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, but remember who Jesus is. He's the one that stops the wind and stills the sea. He's the one that stops your doubt and gives you faith. <clears throat> yes, and takes away the fear, right? And uh, otherwise, uh, verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If you ask doubting, um, you, you won't receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded or double-souled man, unstable in all his ways. Why? Because he, you know, he thinks that... Uh, that uh, he has two allegiances, you know, in one sense, that God's going to provide for him, God's not going to provide for him, I've got to provide for myself. How does that differ from um, the man who said to Jesus, I believe help my unbelief? I, I actually think what James does here is, uh, in, in a sense, his words accuse every single person, right? Yeah, this is the law. This is the law. He snuck the law in, hasn't he? In a Jesus-like way, without you knowing it's even coming, he snuck it in there and and hit us all. I think the proper response to this verse is uh, to repent and confess that we never ask in faith the way we should, that we're always double-minded. Remember the prayer of the psalmist, um, uh, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I mean, that prayer isn't realized until we're dead and free from this sinful nature and before the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. Only then do we have an undiv- a truly undivided heart, right? Otherwise, to the day we die, the old Adam clings in us. To the day we die, we're simul justus et peccator, saint and sinner. To the day we die, there's division in us. So I think James is pointing that out in a way that sneaks up and hits you right between the eyes so that we confess that this is us. But, you know, this is the way that James does it too. You reread that section and who do you find then that stills the doubt, that stops the double-minded man, that stops the wave from... And you go back and you find Christ in the middle of it, don't you? You find the wisdom that is Christ. You find the calmer of the storm that is Christ. We're going to see this theme repeat throughout James, that even as he's, he's smacked you with the law, as you go and reread it, you're going to find Christ right in the middle of it again. It's, just, I, it's one of the most beautiful and eerie things, I think, about this epistle, that... He nails you and then you go back and look and Christ is hiding in there. And it's as if the law is right there pointing you right to Jesus who's right in the same section. I don't the, know if the gospel's in there too. This it is. is. You're right. You're exactly... I mean, the, that's, yeah, that's my point yeah, is that the gospel is in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Said, yeah. yeah Christ is wisdom, but I like the let him ask God. <laughs> yeah, well, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because God, God is the giver of wisdom, just as God is the revealer of Christ. Um, you know, uh, remember when uh, Peter confesses the faith and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, God is the one who reveals Jesus to us and gives Jesus to us. So if you lack Jesus, 
you ask the Father and the Father gives you Jesus fiat lack wisdom yeah I, um, I see a lot of similarities in the way the approach that James is using and that between that and uh, Proverbs yes how you know these and you, there's a tendency to see Proverbs as like you know like this is an edict yeah if you do this you're going to get that and if you don't do that you know and I just think it's one of those books where from our perspective with a a God's or a, a you know a cross centered theology as opposed to a God's or a glory centered theology um, when you're when you're thinking in terms of glory you're thinking okay I better do this or I'll get that whereas from our perspective uh, you'll it it does it turns that from like a third use of the law to more of like a you know a, a, an impetus to drive you to the cross absolutely you know it's, instead of like being despair because I'm I early in my Christian faith I memorized a lot of James and I think it really screwed me up because it was from a it was you know from a nat, more of a natural evangelical perspective so you know it's like you know, like I saw that verse, and it's okay. Uh, you know, I want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, so I, I better do this. You know, and it was like, it, it totally misses the whole law-gospel distinctive and, and, you know, what it's really about and, and all that stuff. And I is that, I mean, in your understanding, I don't know how much you've already covered on this, but is that kind of why Luther kind of hated this book? Or wasn't really crazy about it? To some extent, and that's... Early Luther, but later Luther sort of changes his mind, uh -huh. and on the whole, Luther quotes from James liberally in his yeah. Words. So it was just a, it was a as he was coming out of his Catholicism and the, he, it, he yeah he, hated it here's the it yeah here's the problem thing. is for whatever reason uh, when we read James we see a, a, a Judaizer a yeah. moralizer yeah. a legalist and. If, if you take nothing else from this class with me as we go through James, I hope you see James in a different light. That he's not. Yeah. That he does the law in a faithful way and he does the gospel in a faithful way. And if you read James superficially, I mean, if you read yeah. the section that we went through superficially, you go, oh, wisdom. Well, okay, if you want to get smarter, I guess you pray to God. Uh, you better not doubt or you get nothing. And you go through this and, you, and I mean, how is that? Superficially, it's very legalistic. That's what I mean. It's from a it's yeah. from a fleshly, you know. And yeah. I think this is one of the problems that evangelicalism makes is yeah. they're they're so seeking God's favor that they miss the very thing that God says. Okay, you want to know yeah. my favor? You want to understand me? You can't, buddy. You're 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 you know you're you're writing checks you can't cash, you know, and. <laughs> And that's the arrogance, and I think the, the, the problem, one of the biggest problems, I think, with, you know, the theology of all these other uh, viewpoints versus, you know, the, the, the approach from the cross perspective. Yeah. With, with James, I mean, from a very human standpoint, not, yeah. not even like a theological standpoint, dig deeper. The, exactly, gospel, yeah. the gospel's there, Jesus is there, keep digging, and you're going to find him. But the same, I mean, the same from a human standpoint could be said in uh, the parables. Mm -hmm. 
keep digging and you're going to find Jesus, you're going to find grace, you're going to find mercy. Now the truth of it is, theologically and rightly speaking, it, you could dig for eternity and never find it. It has to be revealed to you by God. Exactly. And that's true with James also. It has to be revealed to us by God. It has, the Holy Spirit has to show us through his word, Christ in these scriptures. And so ultimately that's, that's what it is. And the human way of speaking is a wrong way of speaking ultimately. Because it's, it's God who reveals himself in the parables of Jesus and in, and in James. But the point is, I think, the superficial of re reading of James leads you to just that. He's a moralizer. He puts an impossible yoke on people. Um, and uh, it's a very difficult book. And I think as Luther read it in the context of um, the papal tyranny and the legalism of Rome, when he first read it, he said, yuck, yeah. this is right up their alley. Uh, there are some redeeming parts to it, but generally it's right up their alley. Now, it's interesting, as, as Luther matured, as he became more uh, grounded in the gospel and more secure in it, also as he went through uh, the antinomian controversies, yeah. where he actually came up against Christians who said, yeah, the law of morality, clothing your neighbor, forget it all, you're free in Jesus. Uh, Luther was so uh, appalled at that that uh, he took a better view of James in, in his later years and started to say, I see what James was actually getting at. <laughs> Uh, James is a pastoral epistle too. You, you know, James isn't sitting down saying, "I'm going to write the dogmatic tome on the relationship between justification and good works." Right. That's not what James is doing. James is a pastor writing a pastoral letter to uh, Christians who are in a specific context, scattered abroad because of persecution. Yeah. So it's important to to keep in mind um, what James is and isn't. Not a dogmatics textbook on justification a pastoral letter talking to real people in real circumstances we need to know what to do yeah exactly <laughs> we need to know what to do what to pray for what to think who to look for yeah, yeah. Um, we're at time and uh, but the next section we're going to go into is just wonderful we're going to find Jesus hidden there too um, let's let's close there we'll just pick up and, and go uh, you know the end of chapter one I don't I really don't think we're going to get that much further because it's so this first chapter is so dense in James let's close with prayer dear heavenly father we give thanks to you for your word and especially for this epistle that James wrote to Christians scattered abroad so many years ago and we pray that by the power of your spirit his words would still speak to us today and give us comfort and strength even as we feel a, a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to us, we pray that you would allow us to count all persecution and all difficulties for the sake of your name as joy, that these things might create in us not a loss of faith, but an increase in steadfastness of faith, that we might be firm in ourselves and firm and strong enough in the faith to encourage and strengthen one another through your word, that we might in these gray and latter days continue to bless your name and proclaim your name to those who are outside of your kingdom that they too might see your marvelous light we ask these things in Jesus name Amen No, I've got some yeah. I didn't have my book, so I didn't see, I don't, you probably don't remember when I asked about okay. how it seems like the gospel is um, in the sacraments. Yes, yes, I remember that. Very good. Good, okay. Okay.
Yeah. 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 Yeah.